BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here, back again. Uh, it's bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. And uh, I think we're uh, streaming this live, right, D? Uh, we're, it's going to be streaming live now. Uh, right now. And of, uh, the way we do this on the uh, bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show, just remind everybody the date. Let's see. Today's date is September 26th. Been a long day. I forgot it's September 26th. Uh, we are streaming this one live. But for the podcast, it drops uh, Saturday at 6. So you'll be hearing this anytime in the universe. And as I always do with a bonus interview, I ask my distinguished guest to introduce him or herself. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. I'm Dan Savage, and I write Savage Love, which is a sex advice column that's run in the reader for years and years and years and in papers all over the country. And I host the Savage Lovecast, which is a sex and relationship advice podcast where I run my mouth. All right. He runs his mouth and he gives sex advice. And uh, yes, he writes a column. And uh, I told you I was going to say this, Dan. I'm going to say it right now. <laughs> for years and years, it. he's been writing for the Chicago. Well, his column has been in the reader. And my column has been in the reader for years and years and years as well. And I've always had to sort of play second fiddle to this guy. People go, oh, man, you see Savage Love, blah, blah, blah. What about my column? And uh, oh, no, man, Savage Love. So uh, anyway, thank you for coming in. I appreciate it. Uh, pleasure to be here. And uh, you have a particular reason to be in Chicago. So let's get that uh, up front right now. So uh, why are you in Chicago in particular? I'm doing Savage Love Live tonight at the Music Box Theater on Southport. Uh, if anybody out there watching the stream still wants to get tickets, go to savagelovecast.com slash events. And I think you can still get a ticket or just show up uh, at the Music Box Theater on Southport. What time again did you say? I think it's at 8 o'clock, but I would have to look it up. All right. Uh, so he's got a lot of running a lot of running around to do. And I appreciate, uh, Dan, you, you making some time for us. Uh, before I start asking you political questions, because I told him uh, in that I was going to say ask Dan off his thoughts on all the political uh, wheeling and dealing going on. Uh, you're from Chicago a little bit. Talk about being a Chicago kid growing up in the city of Chicago. Well, I grew up in Rogers Park, which, you know, we like to say is as far north as you can go without getting in the suburbs and as far east without getting in the lake. It's right up there at the top. Uh, and it was a great place to grow up. And because of mass transit, because of the CTA, because uh, of the buses, it didn't feel like you were isolated in some far-flung corner of the city. Uh, my brother went to high school downtown. I went to high school downtown. Um, and we always felt like we were integrated into the entire town in a, in a real way. I loved growing up in Chicago. I loved being uh, just a mile or two from the lake growing up. Um, and I loved being a city kid. We were all really independent. Uh, maybe sometimes I think for my parents' tastes, too independent. Uh, there was the time I think I was 16 or 17 years old and I took the money I'd saved uh shucking oysters at Grover's Oyster Bar in Irving Park Road out of the bank and went to the airport on the train on the L 
and bought myself a plane ticket and flew to San Francisco to see a friend. Oh, <laughs> and then called my bold. parents and let them know you that 16? I was uh, going on a trip. 16 or 17 yeah. years old, I don't remember. Um, I don't think the L actually went all the way to the airport, though. I had to take a bus. Jefferson Park. You went yeah. to Jefferson Park. What high school did you go to? Uh, I went to three. I went to, and they're all closed now, so I am the destroyer of high schools. <laughs> uh, I went to uh, Quigley Preparatory Seminary North. Oh, my God. Wait, it's your second guest from Quigley today. Go ahead. And I went to uh, St. Gregory the Great. Uh, and then I went to Metro High, which oh was an alternative God. Chicago high school downtown. And all, all right. of them are closed, all including right. both of my grade schools are closed. Like nothing's left. Yeah, so that's why you left Chicago. All right. Let, before we get into why you left Chicago, let's just talk about the distinctions. You're going to Quigley, which is a, a preparatory school to become a priest. Mm. And then you went to St. Gregory's, which is a Catholic school on the north side. It, you're right. It's a charter school now. And Metro was like hippie high yeah. in the 70s. It was like the quote unquote publicly funded alternative school for kids who quite quite wasn't weren't fitting in remember was was it a school without walls when you were there it, no was, called, it had what was called an ancillary program where you would take you know you could approach like the shed aquarium and create your own course on marine biology if you were so motivated you could also <laughs> uh just coast along doing basically nothing if you yeah. were so unmotivated uh, it was a you know good place for me to go to high school. We called the teachers by their first names. It was a real change from my, uh, particularly my Quigley High School, Quigley Preparatory Seminary North experience. The Pope didn't drop by Metro High. Yeah, it was, the Pope dropped by Quigley when I was going there. The Pope actually dropped. You were uh, to Quigley in '79 when the Pope visited. Yeah, when Chicago? John Paul II came to Chicago and they they hauled our all of our little Catholic boy asses out to Quigley Preparatory Seminary South, uh, and the Pope came and now spoke did to us. you leave the Catholic schools because the Catholic schools asked you to leave or did you leave because <laughs> you couldn't take another minute of it? Um, you know, I couldn't take another minute of it and I hated quickly and quickly hated me. And I did something that if you, if a kid did it now, he'd go to jail. Uh, I was in sophomore year there. I was miserable. I wanted to, uh, go to a different high school. My parents wouldn't let me, they were going to make me finish the year. And so do you know what an name 80 is? An M80, the... Oh, yeah, the rock, uh, the firecracker. Yeah, yeah which yeah. is like an eighth of a stick of dynamite yeah, or something. Yeah, or? it's pretty... Yeah, oh, yeah, you stay away from that. Maybe it'll blow your fingers off. Yeah, I put two in my locker and blew my locker up and walked out of school and never went back and Whoa. they expelled me. And at first they wouldn't <laughs> release my... Them. At first they wouldn't release my, uh, my Wait, transcripts or whatever. Wait, how old I was 15 or 16 so years old. So this is before you took the flight to San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I, you know, I, I was sometimes, I was this interesting combo of like the good kid who didn't cause trouble for my parents and the kid who like committed a terrorist act at Quigley Preparatory Seminary in order to get my ass expelled. Was there something you were hearing from the priests at Quigley that really uh, turned you off? Uh, uh, well, I, you know, like a lot of teenage boys, I was set of finely tuned bullshit meter and uh, hypocrisy drove me up the wall and there was what we were told about being Catholic and what people said about being Christian and then there were all of the ways that people behaved there which were you know it was Lord of the, it was Lord of the Flies in, in a Catholic boys school it was also really I never got touched in Catholic grade school or high school I'm not one of the one of the walking sort of wounded not a survivor not a victim but there were certainly things going on around me where I was just like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> like the high school, yeah. the, the, the seniors in high school and the juniors in high school took swim class before the freshmen and 
juniors and seniors swam naked yeah and they would come marching down the hall naked from swim classes all the freshmen are filing in on our swimsuits and there were two priests whose full-time job on the door was disciplinarian and so if you were misbehaved you were sent to one of these two 20-something catholic priests to be spanked mm-hmm. i don't think that job exists in the catholic church anymore officially but you can see how that might lend itself to someone abusing their authority and let's pleasure. briefly talk about this naked swimming in the schools it wasn't <laughs> just quigley you should know this it was throughout the public school system of Chicago. It happened in Evanston, happened in Oak Park, uh, Oak Park, Fenwick High School. I had a friend who graduated from Fenwick Catholic School in Oak Park. What do you think is going on there uh, when you have an all-boy? Well, forget all-boy. I mean, any school, because uh, Evanston's not all-boy in public schools in Chicago, but you have a school where they're requiring the boys to swim naked. What What's What's going on there, Dan? Well, I have no idea what's going on there, but it made me extremely uncomfortable uh, <laughs> when I was 14 years old. Wait, you're a sex advice columnist. Well, I'm a sex some... like columnist now. I yeah. wasn't when I was a 14-year-old <laughs> well, freshman without any pubic hair being <laughs> marched by this like long line of seniors in high school. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but when you look back now, what do you think? What's go- what, what, I, well, I, I've struggled with this one. You know, there's. it's almost like... At once, it you know it was intensely sort of sexual and homoerotic, uh, and on the other hand, it rested on the premise that there were no there was no such thing as a gay person that no one could possibly perceive this uh, as in any way inappropriate because there's certainly no desire at play when it's just a room full of men's, and as we all know that that not only wasn't true then it wasn't true ever. And so it was, you know, a part of, for, for me, you know, how I perceived it as a queer kid, it was a part of sort of the hypocrisy of the assumption that, uh, of our non-existence, that the queer kids, queer people, gay men didn't exist, particularly in the Catholic church, did not exist. And so there was nothing inappropriate about all these high school boys swimming together naked and all these priests lurking around waiting to spank them in the disciplinarian's office. Yeah, some strange stuff and happening at the public schools. I always thought it was a form of uh, intimidation and hostility, like really overt, a passive aggressive behavior, you know, just to to, to humiliate people for a while and (laughs) enjoy it. Then like the the teachers would be fully clothed. I'm like, wait, what's the deal here? I didn't know it went on in other places. I thought Quigley, you know, it's the only place that ever I ever witnessed it was Quigley. I thought it was some like bizarro, nutty, Catholic, Gothic pile (laughs) on Rush Street. Trust me, the public schools were doing the same thing. Uh, all right, so then you went to St. Gregory's before you went to Metro High. So I, I'm thinking about it, it's like a methadone treatment. You know what I mean? <laughs> you're like building yourself up to where you're weaned from the drug of uh, the Catholic schools. Yeah, well, I went to Greg's because that's where my brother and sister were going. And Greg's was such a 50s throwback then. You know, there's the captain of the baseball team. It was just such a sort of like cliche you know, platonic ideal of an American high school experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I kind of liked my time at Greg's. I was only there for three quarters of a year before I found out about Metro and transferred my little bag theater ass to Metro where I, you know, took a class, you know, I did my own coursework at the Goodman theater and, um, worked at a costume shop downtown that I don't think exists anymore. Um, and got class credits for it. And, uh, I, I actually, you know, took advantage of the programs at Metro uh, and wasn't one of the kids who coasted. But, uh, but yeah, it was the right school for me at the time. Well, one of the things that you obviously picked up on uh, as a young scholar at uh, uh, Metro and St. Gregory's and uh, uh, 
all the other Catholic schools that you went to. Quigley St. Ignatius. Quigley St. Good God. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the, they are all closed. Gertrude's for kindergarten, St. Ignatius one through four, St. Jerome's, and then they're all closed. They're just like, the only school I got anywhere near in this state, the University of Illinois, where I went to college, is the only one that still exists, and who knows when they're going to... Well, Rauner's gone, so the, the, the most imminent threat was Bruce Rauner, our previous governor. But one of the things you obviously picked up there as, uh, as a young kid was the hypocrisy of people in authority who say one thing and do something else, who advocate one thing and then live a, uh, a di- completely different life. Obviously, you were very sensitive to that, and I see that very much as a constant theme in your columns down through the years. I'm not, I'm not even talking about the political time, the times when you venture into politics, which I'm going to drag you into politics, whether you want to go there well, or not. I, I still feel very Catholic. You know, when religious people get in my face about my column and how, you know, anything goes in my column, I, I always tell them that, you know, if you put all my columns in a pot and boil them down, what you're left with is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. There's just a lot more doing unto that's possible in my universe than your universe. But it is about <laughs> consent and consideration and empathy and not treating someone in a way that you yourself wouldn't want to be treated and projecting yourself into that other person's experience. And that's what I took away from my Catholic education. I consider myself culturally very Catholic. Um, and I like to say I'm Catholic just to drive you know, Catholics. fake Catholics like Brian Brown, the head of the national or international organization for the family or national organization for marriage up the wall. Uh, because I feel, I feel Catholic in the same way that my Jewish friends who get together and uh, do Yom Kippur and, uh, and Passover who don't believe in God and eat as much bacon as they possibly can. <laughs> uh, I feel as Catholic yeah. as they feel Jewish and as uh, legitimate a claim to Catholic as an identity culturally as, as they claim to Judaism. As You've created your own Catholicism. <laughs> yeah. You know, they always talk about cafeteria Catholics. Uh, you are your own Catholic and you've created your own dogma and you don't have to abide by theirs. Um, well, one of the, when I talk about hypocrisy and double standards, I told you before, I just read this column you wrote, uh, cross-dressing Republicans, and it was a classic Dan Savage column, because on one hand, the person was seeking advice on how to behave, uh, and the other hand, he was, I presume it was a he, I think it was a he who wrote the, the letter. The question, The yeah. question. Uh, it, it was was pointing out the utter hypocrisy of his father, I think it was the father, I don't have it in front of me now. No, no, you're it, leaping on the hypocrisy of the dad, yeah. and other people did too, and I kind of left it alone. The, it's a 30-something kid who 20 years ago discovered that his dad, who's a conservative conservative sort of manly man, Republican, uh, was a secret cross-dresser yeah. and would correspond with other straight male cross-dressers. A lot of straight male cross-dressers do this where they have other straight guys they know in their lives uh, who are cross-dressers and they, they, they share this kind of affinity like model train mm-hmm. nuts for cross-dressing and it's not necessarily sexual. Uh, and his mother recently discovered that her husband, after 40 years of marriage as a crossdresser, and his mother asked him to confront his father about it. And he wanted to know what to do. And I told him to keep his mouth shut and it's none of his business. And, um, I don't understand why his mother wants him to have this conversation with his father. And what's the point of this conversation except to embarrass and humiliate the dad. And he said that they've had a great and loving marriage and he was a good dad. And yet there's this cross-dressing thing. And I think the cross-dressing thing may be a contributor to him being a good and loving dad and spouse because it was this sort of stress release for his hyper performance of masculinity and having this stress release for that probably made him a better person. Wish it had made him a better voter. Wish it had had made him uh, see himself for who he would be perceived as by his Republican sort of 
co-conspirators uh if they knew this of him they would cons- they would think he was just some like fucking perverted faggot like the rest of yeah. us and, and you'd think that he would then not vote for people who would if they could slit his throat yeah and his son is a, a bi guy in a relationship with a with a man and you'd think he wouldn't vote for people who would do harm to his own children and and, and yet he does and it's probably a part of the performance of masculinity there's a whole bunch of people out there who vote Republican just because they're they're trying to say something about themselves that they are like manly men who, you know, drive cars and, and use straws and don't care about the environment (laughs) and don't care about people uh, and are just jerks. And, 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 you know, that part of that kind of toxic masculinity, the performance of it, People express that not just, you know, by cross-dressing. People also express that by voting for Trump. Um, wow. All right. That was a great riff. And it leads me to something that's been on my mind, which I hadn't even written down and thought about asking you. Uh, on my mind lately is the FBI. The Chicago Sun-Times has been has set up a, a website where you can look at files that the FBI collected on people uh, who are dead Chicagoans. So like Mike Mor- Mike Morico's in there, Saul Linsky, Studs Turkle, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, Richard Daly and a lot of mobsters, tons of mobsters. Okay. And I've obsessively and richard uh, daly too richard mm. j daly daddy daily okay right. yeah not baby because he's still alive so i've been obsessively going through these files i'm just gonna share this with you dan and spending up way too many hours looking at these files much of the repetitions of the pdf and i get a headache but one thing i am thinking about a lot makes me think about many of these people many of these files are initiated follow me on this where somebody would write a letter to j edgar hoover and say, like, I just read this uh, Mike Royko column that's outrageous, and you should look into this scumbucket. And by the way, could you send me an autographed picture of you? I really admire you. You're one of the greatest people I've ever lived. Crossdresser, by the way. That's where I was going. <laughs> because Jake, or then when he would write a response, himself would, thank you for your letter, and here's some of the pictures. So what is with Jake or Hoover and the crossdressing and his just obsessive hatred attitude for anything that he would call quote unquote deviant in behavior when he himself was living that life. Well, not only was he a crossdresser, uh, he was also, it, it, you know, all the evidence points to him having been gay and in a long-term relationship with a man. And there's a long history of figures like Roy Cohn uh, and J. Edgar Hoover of people who knew themselves to be gay and they threw up kind of uh, you know, force field or that they convinced people not that they couldn't possibly suspect them of being gay because look at how homophobic they were. Look at how they persecuted gay people. So they were above suspicion themselves. And it's a kind of weaponization of the closet. And, and gay people are really familiar with this. Like there's constantly examples of people like Ted Haggard, of people like Larry, uh, what's his face? Craig. In Idaho, Larry Craig in Idaho. How did I remember that? All these people who were very <laughs> yeah. toxic homophobes who turned out to be, uh, by in the case of Ted Haggard, he claims, um, or closeted and gay, and as it would appear to be the case of Larry Craig, the wide-stanced Minneapolis airport dude. Yeah. Um, and you know, it is a cliche now uh, in Gayland, but has been for a very long time that the more homophobic someone is, the likelier they are to have externalized their internal conflict. You know, the more sort of obsessed someone is with gay sex and hating gay people, what they hate is themselves. Uh, and I wish that we talked about this more so that, you know, people who were homophobic 
shut the fuck up about it lest someone think they're gay because it really is a leading indicator it really is um you know the 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 smoke over the forest of somebody's likeliness to 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 harbor homosexual desires and now there's science that backs this up they have this thing called a penisograph or something uh, where they What's can, it called? The, it's a tube that you put someone's genitals in, and as air is displaced, as their genitals swell, you can measure their arousal levels. And when they show, if they show gay pornography uh, or homoerotic images to people who score high on measures of homophobia, they become aroused. There's a so, test. Yes, yes, there is science now for this. So if you like hate and have a problem with gay people and you don't want people to think you're gay, shut up. All right, about well then, it. Uh, moving from the dead of Jagger Hoover to the the living, the obvious candidate, which I'm going to bring out here right now, Mike uh, Pence. I mean Pence. Yes. How'd you know, Mike Pence? We've been talking about Indiana a lot today. We had a previous guest was extolling the virtues of some section of Indiana. It's lovely. Uh, it's I've, weird how he doesn't want to be alone with a woman, isn't it? I know lots of guys like that. A lot of them are at sidetrack right now. <laughs> By the way, we will be at sidetrack in two weeks doing a show. I just want to, as long as you know, the, you know, shameless promotion, we'll be doing it during the, t- the night of the town hall, uh, democratic, uh, it's not a debate forum on, um, uh, gays, what have you. All right. Anyway, let's go back to, so Mike Pence thoughts mm-hmm. on Mike Pence, Mike Pence, you know, based on the science and, and, and based on, a mountain of anecdotal evidence in the Ted Haggards and Larry Craig's of the world may be externalizing an internal conflict, may be attempting to uh, persecute others and assert control over others because what he's really trying to do is control himself. Always suspicious of guys who uh, make a big show out of how they don't want to be alone with women lest something untoward happen. And what kind of message do you think Donald Trump was sending out by selecting him of all people to be his running mate? Oh, that was a message to the religious right. That was a message of religious conservatives that on, uh, quote unquote, social issues, uh, and, and culture war issues, they would get everything they wanted and they have, uh, on abortion. Um, you know, they, they set up a Supreme court that is highly likely to overturn, uh, Obergefell, same sex marriage and Roe v. Wade. And they've attacked, uh, LGBT people, um, with every lever, uh, in the executive, uh, office that they possibly can, you know, mm-hmm. banning trans people from the military over the objections of the military brass and the leadership of the Pentagon. Um, making it legal now for doctors to refuse to care for uh, LGBT people if they object for religious reasons to not letting this person die on a gurney in front of them, because that's a very Christian thing to do. Um, there's The Trump administration has rolled out so much uh, anti-gay policy, um, and it's all to keep evangelical Christians uh, in line for Trump and evangelical Christians are about power. They're about punishing other people. Uh, and they're about white supremacy and they're about hatred and they're about homophobia and they're about misogyny. And Trump is all about that. And Pence was all about that. And that's why he went with Pence and didn't go with Chris Christie, for example, because Chris Christie wasn't <laughs> yeah. the, the towering, messy, conflicted bigot that Mike Pence is, and Trump needed to lock down the towering, messy, conflicted bigot vote to win. And also, uh, Chris Christie prosecuted by uh, Kushner's father. So Trump's son-in-law's whatever he is Chris Christie sent Jared Kushner's dad to jail for things that Donald Trump 
did tenfold and yes. should be. Example. And still doing uh, yeah. as we speak. Uh, all right. Now, please explain something else. As long as we're in the role of uh, dissecting and analyzing Donald Trump and his, uh, the people are in his life, the role that, that his daughter Ivanka plays in all this, because it always seems to be when Donald Trump, he's got Pence there, as you say, transmitting a certain message. All right. Beyond a dog whistle. And then he brings out Ivanka, who's supposedly more tolerant uh, toward gays. It's a, like to, sh- to show, well, you know, I'm not anti-gay so what what do you what do you make of the ivanka role in all this it's window dressing and it's you 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 know he's got to there's a tiny sliver of the electorate uh that may experience some cognitive dissonance and is looking for something to justify their frankly bigoted vote for Trump and any hook they can hang it on. Oh, Trump held up a pride flag. Trump said LGBTQ during his nomination speech. Uh, You know, Ivanka is not anti-gay. Therefore, I can vote for this dude, even though I'm telling my son who's gay that I love him or telling my daughter who's bisexual or lesbian that I love her. And yet I want to vote for this monster. Uh, And so I can look my kid in the eye and lie to them and myself by saying, oh, he's not an anti-gay bigot because there's Ivanka. He's not an anti-gay bigot. Don't look at Mike Pence. Don't look at all the policy. Look at, you know, Trump, you know, has didn't doesn't have a personal problem, he says, with gay people. He appointed a right-wing fascist gay conservative as ambassador to Germany, um, who has been a disaster. Uh, and Germany almost asked the United States to recall this ambassador because he's been stoking and, and, and praising the, the fascist right-wing movement in Germany, which U.S. ambassadors typically don't do. Um, <laughs> At least since 1930s. And these are the hooks that, that, that people need. These are the, these are the uh, releases people need to justify a vote that they know in their heart is wrong. Well, let's talk about that's that. why they throw. That's why he throws them out there. And then they put Sefak out there. And that's the role mm-hmm. that she plays. It's very uh, uh, a curious role. And whenever I see it, like, for instance, when Lori Lightfoot, the mayor, the current mayor of Chicago, went to Washington and was uh, uh, greeting all the people in Washington, the congressmen, et cetera. And uh, it's, it's, it's a typical pilgrimage that a, a newly elected Chicago mayor makes. She went to the White House, which is kind of interesting. Why? Whatever. She went to the White House. She didn't meet with Donald Trump. She met with Ivanka. And there's pictures of the two of them uh, together. What's that all about? I have no idea. I would only meet with Ivanka if I had could pull an exorcist <laughs> on demand. If I could puke green soup up at will. That's the only way I would be in the same room with anyone in that family. <laughs> you hear that, Lori Lightfoot? That's Dan Savage speaking. Uh, do you have uh, uh, sort of an aversion to gay people who vote for Donald Trump? Oh, yeah. <laughs> don't breed them, don't feed them, like the lesbian uh, separatist feminists used to say about men. Uh, yeah, I, I have a, a, a very strong aversion to anyone who would... Um, because of because they want a tax cut, because they hate people of color, uh, because they hate and fear immigrants, which is the most anti-American thing I can think you can possibly do, uh, are going to vote for Donald Trump. I think it's utterly despicable. Um, I think it's utterly despicable whoever votes for Donald Trump. It is incomprehensible that a queer person would vote for Donald Trump. What's, in your opinion, worse, a black person voting for Donald Trump or a queer person voting for Donald Trump? A black queer person voting for Donald Trump. <laughs> That's the worst. Yeah. I, do you know of any? Uh, 
No, not personally. Well, I could tell you this right now. This is one of my favorite little things. Uh, polls, the extra polls lie, Dan. And uh, when I look at real numbers, so this is my favorite things I talk about on the air a lot is that the exit polls show, I think 9% of black people voted for Donald Trump's million, which I thought I completely fraudulent. Cause like you cannot tell me you could fi- put a hundred black people in a room and find nine who actually voted for Trump. But when you take a look at the actual votes mm-hmm. in Chicago, the only beneficiary of segregation that we have in this city, since you were growing up and left is that, uh, you can you have precincts that are identifiably a hundred percent black, so you could see how people vote. Guess what? He's lucky if he gets one percent in those precincts. So that nine percent is just somebody lying to uh, maybe somebody lying, or maybe individual results or <laughs> individual precincts may vary. Uh, yeah, it's something like two percent of that nine percent figure uh, wraps up. You know, of all African American voters, wraps up a lot of male voters because it's only two percent of African American women. Yeah, according to those that that, that polling data. No, that's high. That's inflated. That two percent includes the black guys who voted for him and, the, and, and diamond and silk, and that's it. Yeah, that is it. All right, I'm very conscious of the clock because I know you have a lot of places to go. So there's a couple things, just some uh, names I want to throw by and get your reaction to. Let's start the top of the list. Nancy Pelosi. What's your the Dan Savage attitude toward Nancy Pelosi? Oh, you know, it seems like. We should have moved on impeachment a year ago. We worked so hard to help the Dems retake the House to create a check on the, the Trump administration to hold Trump accountable to get Trump's tax releases uh, made public, and all of this stonewalling and, and violations of, of subpoenas, refusal to testify, contempt for Congress, and the House not using the tools at its disposal to hold the Trump administration accountable. It's almost like Democrats are have an aversion to the exercise of raw power, even though we handed them this power to specifically exercise in this case and, and, and check the Trump administration and, and hold them accountable. Mitch McConnell would not hesitate to uh, hold people in contempt to find people if he was running the house and, and Democrats were up there stonewalling, refusing to answer questions, lying to Congress, which is a federal crime. Do you think Mitch McConnell would be wringing his hands about the optics? Mitch McConnell would be getting out the the, the knives. <laughs> and, and I'm just I'm so tired yeah. of this <laughs> attitude among uh, elected Democrats that two things that they are there in Washington to set a good example for Republicans. When Republicans are shit-flinging toddlers, and there's no setting an example for them, uh, and, and also this idea that and Demo- Republicans do not have this problem. Majorities are always in the end lost. So when you have a majority, the goal of having a majority is not the eternal perpetuation of that majority. You do have to risk seats by pushing through your policy agenda. They did it on health care, and now it's redounding to D- Democrats' benefit. Obamacare is much more popular now than it was when it first passed. But Democrats, and I see this in Washington State where I live, we had a Democratic supermajority in the state legislature. And the attitude among Dems was, well, we can't raise the minimum wage. We can't institute a, a state income tax in Washington where we have a very regressive tax system. Uh, we can't do this. We can't do that because we might lose our majority. 
you're there, you're going to lose your majority. What are you going to get done before you lose your majority? What are you going to lock into place? That's what Republicans do. They get shit done and they lock shit into place before they lose their majority. That's what they did with the Supreme Court. And Dems don't do that. Dems are just cringing in a corner in terror that we might lose our majority someday when we will absolutely, definitely lose that majority someday. What are we going to do while we got it? Yeah, they uh, they seem to be, they seem to act as though, they act as though there's this spirit of bipartisanship that Dan has not existed since uh, you let, lit off that M80 at, uh, <laughs> I don't even know if it existed then. Uh, all right, I have to ask you about this one. Speaking of Dems, uh, you're in your hometown, so no ducking and dodging in this one. What's your thoughts about uh, former Mayor Rahm Emanuel? I, you know, I don't have a lot of thoughts about Rahm Emanuel. Um, you know, he had brass knuckles and, and and seemed to help Obama get a lot done when he was in the Obama administration early on. You know, we say we want uh, Dems who can throw a punch and, and act like they're at the knife fight that they're at. And Emanuel seemed to have that quality. Uh, the cover-up of the murder of that teenage boy that he Laquan seemed to... McDonald. Yeah, that he seemed to complicit in, if not participate in, actively. Mm -hmm. uh, that's I incredibly troubling. Uh, I'm glad he's no longer the mayor of Chicago. Um, yeah, I don't know. All you right. know, we say we want good and better Dems, and I, I don't think he's a good and better Dem, but there's some part of Rahm Emanuel's toughness and spine that I wish all Democrats had, but better politics. And in the case of Rahm, I wish he uh, used that toughness and spine at Republicans as opposed to just using it on left of center Democrats. That would be my greatest. Yeah, you're a tough guy. Let's see you go after Trump. <laughs> uh, well, it's safe now. Uh, speaking of which, it's safe now. And uh, your sense of where we're heading now with the well, the emergence, we've been talking about it all day, the whistleblower, his memo, uh, Donald Trump's over uh, to the president of uh, the Ukraine to dig up dirt on Joe Biden so it could be used against him just after he, he got in trouble with uh, having Putin dig up dirt on Hillary Clinton. Where we had withholding this? money for Ukraine that had been uh, apportioned by Congress uh, to force them to dig up dirt on his uh, a likely opponent, Joe Biden. I hope we impeach the motherfucker already. I've been pushing ITMFA as kind of a catchphrase for more than two years. Uh, impeach the motherfucker already dot com. Um, and if you know, it just there's a point at which you have to stop running the you know if a Democrat did it tape in your head because you'll just curl up in the fetal position on the floor and die. But if a Democrat had done anything like any of this. They already would have been impeached by a Republican Congress with Democratic assistance. Dems would have called it out. Dems are very good at calling out Dems who are behaving badly and ours don't do it. Yeah. I, I'm i terrified that the takeaway from two, two things, the terror, two terror takeaways from the Trump experience is that uh, don't commit one impeachable offense, commit 100 and you're safe because nobody knows where to start. Yeah. And also, you know, remember Reagan and Star Wars? Remember Reagan and voodoo economics and supply-side economics? And how these were sort of not based, you know, not platforms in the Republican, you know, not, not planks in the Republican platform forever, not Republican dogma, but they became Republican dogma forever after Reagan. And everything Trump is pushing isn't going to go away when Trump's out. It's all becoming Republican dogma and will stay. These attacks on NATO, um, this cozying up to, uh, to, to uh, populist 
um, fascistic strongmen uh, and dictators, uh, this desire to destroy, you know, desire that this active campaign to destroy democracy, um, to prevent people from voting. Um, all of these things are not, and you know, attacks on immigrants, attacks on people of color, attacks on queers. Uh, all these things are not going to go away when Trump goes away. They're the new Star Wars. They're the new supply side economics. It is the new Republican dogma and it is going to outlive him. There's not going to be this reversion to normalcy um, after he's gone, which, you know, Biden was sort of suggesting would happen. You know, the fever is going to break, which Obama said about the election in 2012. Yeah. And it didn't because Republicans are sick to the bone. Republicanism is sick to the bone and it has to be rooted out. Uh, I agree with you 100% of what you just said. And uh, I'm going to let you go because you have a lot of places to go to. And I want to just one before I let you go, give a shout out to those teachers at Metro High. <laughs> Obviously, they taught you something or other uh, to undo whatever you learned or didn't learn uh, at. Uh, no, I got a good education at Quigley, actually, and Greg's. But mostly it was my parents. My parents encouraged all of us to argue with them all the time and to read the papers. Um, and, Are your parents still alive? Uh, my dad is. My dad lives in uh, Arizona. My mom passed away uh, about a decade ago. But I grew up in a newspaper house. My uh, grandfather worked for the Chicago Star and the Chicago Daily News. And we got the Tribune and the Star and the Daily News and the Sun-Times and got all the papers. And, you know, you had to hold your own in an argument at the dinner table about uh, Watergate and Gerald Ford and whip inflation now and everything else and Jimmy Carter uh, to get fed. Uh, it was really my, my parents. Who made... uh, mom's holding back the phone. Come on. Uh, I don't believe it. Whip inflation. Now. All right, here you go. Yeah, whip basically. inflation. Now. I hadn't thought about that in years. The button. Yeah, yeah. Win. Do you still get newspapers or are you just completely? Yeah, I'm a dead tree guy. I still get the, I get the New York Times in, in Seattle. Oh, this thing is, uh, we won't even talk about the Tribune's editorial. All right, Dan Savage, one more time. Folks, if you're watching on the live stream, you can see him tonight at 8 o'clock at the Music Box. There's a lot of seats at the Music Box, so I'm hoping there are a couple left. Are people listening? <laughs> I think there are 50 left. 50 left? Yeah. All right. Well, they, uh, and have a great show, Dan Savage. Thank you so much for stopping by. Thanks for having me. All right, this is Ben Jarofsky. another bonus Ben Jarofsky show. Take care, everybody.